On n'allume pas la radio aujourd'hui. Si. the Ackerman year. My name is Simon Howell. As always, Kate Rennebaum is here. Hello, everybody. And once again, we have a special guest. Can our special guest say hi? Hi. And also, <laughs> and, and also tell us who you are. Hi. <laughs> hi. I'm, uh, I'm Lakshmi Padmanabhan. I'm an assistant professor of film and media studies at Northwestern. And it's good to be here. Yay. Excellent. Uh, so... Once again, complete stylistic whiplash, not only from last week, but actually within this episode, which I'm uh, excited to talk about. Uh, today, we are principally going to talk about uh, two, f- two features of Ackerman's. Uh, we're paring things down a little bit this, uh, this month. First, we'll be talking about uh, News from Home from 1976. Uh, after that, we'll be talking about Letters Home from 1986. And uh, Kate, what would you say uh, is, th- is the connective tissue here? Oh, uh, yeah, our theme for this week. Um, I think this week, this month, uh, I think we had sort of loosely grouped it as a kind of, on the one hand, a mother-daughter episode. I think we have maybe two or even more than two mother and daughter episodes. And then the other connective tissue here, as will quickly become clear, has to do with um, letters, the idea of kind of like relationships through letters, writing letters, structuring films around letters. Uh, and we will dig into that a little bit more. Um, but yeah, that was sort of the rationale behind putting these two films together because they are fairly different stylistically. So we'll see what we come up with in terms of the comparison. Um, and then, yeah, I think I had promised at the end of our last episode or at some point in our previous episode that I would also just quickly run through another film of Ackerman's, which we won't be able to talk about in depth because it doesn't really exist, unfortunately, which is called Hanging Out Yonkers from 1973. Uh, and this was a film that Ackerman worked on around the same time she was working on Le Chambre and uh, Hotel Monterey when she lived in New York in the early 70s. Uh, and she was actually commissioned... I believe sort of either by a woman named Myra Farhi or through a group of people connected to Myra Farhi to make a film for the uh, citywide drug treatment and prevention program called Redirection and Prevention or RAP, which had a uh, location in Yonkers. Um, And Ackerman was commissioned to do a film for them that would be sort of both a kind of promotional film, but also an in-house training kind of documentary which is fascinating because I didn't it was news to me that Ackerman had ever worked in that mode a kind of like industrial sort of style film for a company so that was interesting Babette Mangold has talked about it a little bit in different interviews because she also was working on this film as well and they would sort of trek out uh, you know like an hour and a half subway ride to get out to Yonkers and I think they would go multiple times a week and they would work with the youth participants in this uh, drug program, um, I think predominantly young women, but but a mix, and they would shoot um, kind of observational footage of them. I think mostly observational footage, and uh, yeah, everybody connected with it. Both Menge- both Mem- Mengolt and Ackerman speak very fondly of the film. I think they really loved it, and they really wanted it to be something. Um, and then there's more than one story about how the film got lost. Ackerman talks about leaving some of the footage on a subway train 
back when, you know, that was a thing. It was shot, the footage was reversal film. So there was no negative. It was just that footage. Um, and they left it on a train. So that was part of it, I think. But then, or Mangold tells that story, but then Ackerman tells a story about lending it to uh, INSAS, which is the School of Cinema of Brussels, and them losing part of it. So the film only exists as rushes. Uh, and even then it's only part of the rushes. Um, I believe those are available through the foundation, the Ackerman foundation uh, in Brussels. I think they have uh, the only copy of them. So they're probably available for study, but not for viewing, um, which is kind of too bad because this is clearly sort of Ackerman's like first foray into a slightly more explicitly documentary mode, which she doesn't really pick up again until later. Um, we can kind of debate whether news from home fits into a sort of documentary category, but obviously it's a little different than uh, than that, but anyway, so that was just something we wanted to get in off the uh, off the top here before we talked to the other about the other films. Um, and if yeah. if anyone at home who's listening happens to be holding on to the missing negative <laughs> or the the missing print, rather, uh, you know, just uh, hit us up. Mm-hmm. If you happen to be riding the subway in 1973 in New York. Well, I guess with that, we may as well move on to our uh, our first proper talk spot of the episode, and that's about uh, news from home from 1976. And uh, I want to start with you, Lakshmi. Uh, what's your what's your history with uh, with news from home? Well, I think I have to confess that um, in the spirit of like confessing one's guilty readings, the first time I came to news from home, I was very much feeling like a sort of lost soul in the city of New York and was looking for films that made it made me feel like that rather than the films that were like oh New York city of lights you know so um when I first came to news from home I had just recently moved to the city and um didn't know anything about why I was there and was in this kind of like wasn't trying to finish a PhD but feeling pretty alienated from that process so a PhD um, alienating? I no. don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I watched this film and it made me, I just had so many sort of feelings about it. The first just being the ugliness of New York and that being beautiful in this way that felt, it, it wasn't like a kind of, um, and I'm sure we'll get into talking about her general aesthetic of a sort of like anti-illusionism or like refusing to make things look better than they came out and things like that. But um, for me, wandering through the streets of New York, feeling very lonely and sad, this this film was like, oh, right, this is emo movies for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and also the sort of feeling estranged from one's parents and their their like desperate attempts at talking to you. So all of, so my first feeling about it was just completely like personal, right? Even though obviously um, Ackerman and I do not share any kind of personal history. Um, I'm definitely not um, a Jewish emigre in New York trying to make movies in the 70s. Um, so I guess that was the first and why I kept going back to it. But now as somebody that's, so maybe I'll say a little bit about my research, um, which is actually pretty far from Ackerman, but um keep seeming to run through her work in odd ways. And one, I'm working on a project about um, experimental feminist documentary from India from um, the 80s onwards. 
which has a very different aesthetic than anything that Ackerman does. But I'm also interested in more contemporary work, particularly in like if we would still use the term world cinema to describe um, films that capture a, cert a certain kind of urban alienation, environmental ruin, and um, take up an aesthetics of the long take and what could also be called slow cinema to capture a sort of broader um, structure of slow violence. And I come at these things, so for an example of a film that I've been writing about that is in that vein is Saming Liang's um, work, particularly I Don't Want to Sleep Alone, but also What Time Is It There and some of his other pieces. But again, not necessarily in French cinema, not necessarily in European film at all. Um, but the things that continue to be super interesting for me, particularly in News from Home and in this period of Ackerman's work, is this um, the way that it's a kind of touchstone for what I'm seeing a lot more of in contemporary experimental film, which is um, the sort of letter writing as a narrative conceit, um, or this, yeah, like a broader kind of epistolary frame as a sort of narrative trope that then can hold a sort of broader sense of alienation, of displacement, of being in a world that I don't fully recognize or belong to, right? That kind of exilic cinema, I guess, um, that it makes sense for in our present moment, and especially in the kinds of, if we're sort of diagnosing a political economy that's about sort of late capitalist decline, of course, it makes sense to sort of have that kind of aesthetic in contemporary film. And so it's really striking to think of Ackerman making that kind of work in the 70s, in a period um, when it seemed like the world had a potential future. It seemed like um, travel was something that you looked forward to and that you had a certain freedom of movement, especially between Europe and the U.S. And so for me, the, the fact that these, like a film like News From Home has that kind of real um, stamp of alienation feels almost prescient or like um, gives us a different genealogy of sort of the contemporary work that I'm interested in. So that's another way that I enter into it, I guess. And I'll stop there, but I have, I have many more things to say, but <laughs> I won't go on <laughs> for now. Kate, now that we've had sort of a, a, a zoom out view of uh, many things that we'll, we'll be looking at in this film, maybe uh, I could rely on you for, a, I guess, a, a dry technical description of, <laughs> of what we're looking at, just so, just so the, the punters at home uh, know sort of the, the parameters of what we're talking about. Yeah, I definitely can. Um, and I, I love everything Lakshmi said. I'm excited to dig into all of that. But I also wanted to give my story about how I first came to News From Home because I'll, oh, yes. I'll forget if I don't do it right off the bat because it's a completely ridiculous story, which is that um, I had seen a number of her works when I wrote my um, master's thesis after kind of starting to study her in my undergrad. But for whatever reason, I had avoided seeing News From Home. And um, I think at one point, this is so still stupid, but I, there was an episode of Lost once that I felt like captured this for me. And I see Simon nodding, so I suspect Simon knows where I'm going with this. But there's a late episode of Lost where the character of Desmond talks about how he's saving 
uh, a book by Dickens. I forget which one, but he's saving a novel by Dickens to have it be the last book that he reads before he dies. And I felt like that was the story that I was going to tell myself about why I hadn't seen News from Home yet, was that I knew this was like a genius <laughs> film and I was going to save it to be the last film that I watched before I die, um, which was a silly thing to say. And of course, that didn't hold. By the time I got into my PhD, I think I audited a class with um, the Dennis Lim was teaching and uh, he showed it as part of that class, maybe the Art of the Real class. I don't really remember. But um, anyway, and I was like, damn it, this is so good. Why did I not watch it <laughs> But uh, no, anyway, it's, a, it's an incredible film. It really, it's, it's, yeah, it is a, like so many of Ackerman's films, it is, its reputation as being a masterpiece is pretty well deserved. Um, okay, but that's my uh, coming to the film. So in terms of like a general overview for the film, um, yeah, so Ackerman uh, came back to New York after she'd been uh, abroad, after she had been in Europe working on Jean Dielman and traveling around with that film. Then she decided to go back to New York to continue making films. Uh, she had a grant from German television for about $20,000 uh, for, I believe, through a series that funded sort of portrait films by independent filmmakers, which wasn't a ton of money, but it was more than she might have had before. Um, and she came back and was back in touch with Babette Mengolt, who I believe through Annette Michelson found her a kind of cheap apartment with a kitchen uh, in um, New York, uh, I think like on 81st Street in Columbus. And she spent about six weeks there prepping the film. I feel like this, I feel like it's justified talking about like street corners specifically in relation to this film in New York, because it's so much a part of it. But uh, so she spent time there working on the screenplay. And apparently about halfway through this process, she had the idea that this film that they were going to make about New York, kind of shooting New York, should have a voiceover comprised of letters from her mother. And the letters from her mother had been written on the previous trip when Ackerman was living in New York in the early 70s, like 72, 73. Her mother had been constantly writing her these letters and Ackerman had also been writing back, but she would just use the letters from her mother to comprise the voiceover and Ackerman would read them. So that was the kind of breakthrough for the screenplay. Um, and then, yeah, they shot the film. Um, Mengolt apparently organized all the permissions and insurance to be able to shoot in the subway. And as she said, they paid a lot less money back then for it. She used, she used to think it was a pain in the ass, but she was like, I had no idea how lucky we were that it was just that. <laughs> The yeah, the, 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 the entire budget, as I, as I found it, was about 20 grand. Mm -hmm. I think a decent chunk of that went to those permissions. Yes, probably. <laughs> and in fact, the funny thing was apparently another decent chunk of it went to paying off debts from Jean Dielman, too. Mm -hmm. So it didn't even get used <laughs> entirely for this film. But, um, but yeah, and so that, that's the basics. There's different things. I think maybe the only other important kind of tech thing to say about the film is that um, – Mengolt actually gets a lot of credit for this is that she was very uh, kind of up to speed on the fact that there was a new film process available through a lab that she worked with in New York called Chem Chemtone, C-H-E-M-T-O-N-E, uh, Chemtone, uh, which was apparently a mix of push processing and chemical fogging, uh, which allowed them to like increase the density of the stock so that you could shoot in much darker conditions. Uh, and this was the only Ooh. way that they were able to shoot in subways. So this is why prior to like 1976, you don't see shoots in subways with only natural light because it would have been too dark. And the thing that's fascinating about this is that I had wondered if at any point we would have any reason to make a connection with um, Taxi Driver, the other famous sort of film about New York and alienation that comes out of the same year. And that film also uses Chemtone. According to Paul Schrader, oh. uh, both the opening shot and the closing shot of um, Taxi Driver use this same process. So what are you doing now? 
No, ride around nights mostly, subways, buses. Figure, you know, I'm gonna do that. I might as well get paid for it. So mm-hmm. anyway, there's some other uh, other technical details we can come back to, but that's some basic uh, stuff to get us set up here. So footage of New York, shots of New York um, without, well, the question about the logic behind the images of New York is an important one, I guess, but we have images mm-hmm. of New York and then the mm-hmm. letters being read over. And there's more stuff to say about the voiceover too. Yeah. But. And there's no other soundtrack other than uh, some diegetic sound you can pick up sometimes, which sometimes actually overwhelms the soundtrack of speaking, which I think is important. Uh, and no music. Uh, we'll we'll get plenty of music in the next film. Uh-huh. Uh, so this was actually my first time seeing News from Home. Um, I I'm sure that I had a ticket to see it at the at the TIFF Retro several Christmases ago, and uh, didn't go for some reason. I watched it actually. I watched it the same way, more or less, that uh, Anu Zamul programmed it, which is that I I watched it twice in a row. Once with the English, uh, once first with the French soundtrack, and then with the. Uh, the English soundtrack, both are read by Ackerman. It's assumed that she did the translation herself. As someone seeing it for the first time uh, just in the, in the recent past, uh, I, I found it uh, totally hypnotic. Um, I also found it, um, my way of relating to it was uh, a little, was also sort of displaced because um, there's a, a, a younger person living in my house and she's from Berlin, house, apartment. Uh, and actually, hold on a second. No, she's not home. Uh, so, <laughs> and um, it's been interesting to think about her ex- because she's here for a, a brief time, um, you know, from a place that's far from here. And uh, every morning I, I hear her on the phone in German with with family members. Uh, and it's funny to think about how, uh, I guess, how similar, but also how different that feeling of displacement is now, because, of course, you can readily, easily, instantly communicate with anyone. Uh, for basically no money, um, and uh, and it's and it's instantaneous. And I I love the way that uh, this film preserves not only as you mentioned Lakshmi like grimy 1970s New York. I mean this is not the only place I can see grimy 1970s New York. Although there is certainly um, certainly a special character to the images. I think something that hasn't been mentioned so far is you have these long gaps between the the, the reading of the correspondences, and it seems I could be wrong, but it seems to get longer. As the film goes on, it seems like there's some really there's some longer gaps in the end. And of course, we have a final take that has no narration at all, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, I don't know. I just I love the the representation of distance and time uh, being folded into the editing rhythms, I think is, is just so great. And uh, as much as um, I think there's a quote from uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum somewhere where he talks about uh, the film is a representation of uh, the alienation of exile. And I do like that phrase, but I also think that um, the film is also about the sort of the stubbornness of connection. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't know anyone who's anyone who moved out early to, 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 you know, move, to move to a different city as I went from um, Halifax to Montreal knows the feeling of like that, that, that sort of nagging guilt of like, wow, I should really be doing a better job of, 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 you know, keeping in touch with the people who are, concerned about me even though basically everyone knows we're all going to be fine probably um i don't know i think it it it, it captures that sort of divided loyalty um really nicely and i i also like the idea of the film itself as being like a kind of a corrective maybe to her own uh apparently lackluster correspondence uh, if we're going by <laughs> her mother's complaints <laughs> but you can't though because you know there's like she could never write enough oh i know yes yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the whole thing yes indeed <laughs> 
Yeah, it's true. I mean, maybe we should describe a little bit more about sort of like what the mother is writing in the letters, <laughs> like what the content of the letters are. Um, because I, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's like, well, there's definitely different things to say about this. I mean, on the one hand, the letters are a mix of kind of banal reports on the sort of goings on in the family life, um, right? It's like, oh, the so-and-sos came over for dinner or your little sister is growing up or she's upset about this or your father feels this way about that thing. It's That's sort of the majority of, of the letters, but then they're always peppered with these kind of, um, you know, what 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 is what an average person might consider a sort of guilt inducing kind of mantra about why don't you write more? Why don't you like, we miss you terribly. When will you be home? Please tell us more in your letters. You always write, but you always say the same thing. And so, which is interesting because Ackerman herself doesn't actually characterize it so much as her mother trying to induce guilt in her or something. She, she, how does she describe it? She says something about how Nellie, her mother, is actually not a very sophisticated woman that if, that if Natalia was more sophisticated, she would know not to say these things that for her, it's a very genuine kind of expression from the mother. Just this questioning of why, why can't you be here more all the time? Why can't you be with us all the time? Um, Which is very sweet. But then of course it also introduces the kind of dynamic at the heart of not only this film, but so many of Ackerman's films was, which is this sort of push and pull between you know, the, the, the wish to be connected, but then that connection being kind of overwhelming or kind of closing opportunities for kind of subjectivity or sort of freedom. And then on the other hand, the idea of freedom necessarily being tied in with isolation or alienation and the pull between those two things very much comes through in the voiceover here. Um, yeah, I don't know. Was that your kind of sense of the, the voiceover Lakshmi or did you have other things you were thinking about them? Well, I have about a thousand words on that voiceover. <laughs> I was like, I don't have any thoughts, but then I started writing and it just kept going. Um, but a couple of things that I was thinking as you both were talking, the first, and I keep wanting to return to this, um, is that my first reading of the film was the sort of emphasis on a kind of exile and also the romanticization of New York as a place that it's, it's lovely to be exiled in. Um, that you can be lost and that these sort of street corners can, these images of these street corners can have such sort of pregnant meaning for you and not at all to someone else. Um, but that, you know, that that's part of what it feels like to wander through a city, right? Like that kind of romantic illusion of the flaneur. But then the voiceover and the particularity of the detail and the one on the one hand can be read as then like giving us access to some kind of interiority, um, some kind of particularity that the images don't give us. But I think that whole interpretation of exile and particularity and the sort of alienated subject um, experiencing their, the weight of their own emotions, there is that reading. And then there's also on the other hand, as Simon was saying, the sort of insistence on connection or the kind of um, way to not escape that connection. And I was thinking about that in two, well, there were a couple of things that I was thinking about that. One was um, the sort of broader history of letter writing. And I'm not a literary historian, but um, I've just been reading in it a little bit because I've been interested in this trope of letter writing and why it's showing up in more contemporary films. And what's striking about its origins in the 18th century is one, it that letter writing being a kind of 
um, feminized genre, but also that allows, right, like news from home to literally travel around the world, but also for letter writers to imagine themselves being part of a world that they don't actually see. And so thinking about Ackerman saying, describing her mother's letters as like not sufficiently sophisticated or worldly or something, which I think it was in that interview that was posted um, in the uh, Museum of Moving Image, or that's where I saw that quote from her, um, that that kind of denigration of the was like, in some senses, inherent to that form when it began as well. And that that carries over this kind of um, the letter being positioned not quite as like, a book, you know, a sort of a form of writing that's not claiming a certain standalone authorship, but is also not um, speaking or speech as such. This The letter occupying this kind of in-between zone between those two things. Two things about that. One was um, thinking about the sort of longer history of letter writing and the way that it's a feminized genre and the way that it brings in um, or it's like a genre that like newspapers are trying out, novels are trying out um, to get to the sort of middle voice that um, that can also convey some sort of like immediacy and things that are happening right now. Um, but then the way that that also becomes like a kind of attempt at bringing another part of the world to you or something that there is this. And so I guess a way to explain how I thought about that was I was teaching a bit of this film news from home with Khalil Joseph's black news, which is a sh- an experimental short. I don't know if you've watched it, but it's a kind of a series of clips that sort of both ironically, but also kind of earnestly um, would be if, if there were a black news station, like the kinds of things they would cover. And it's a mashup of like YouTube videos and there is like a news desk and there's sort of, important um, famous figures being intercut with it, right? Like that kind of non-hierarchization of what would constitute news and, and call into being a kind of community. That That's one thing that I feel like um, Chantal's mother is trying to bring to her, right? Like trying to give her updates, both of like political changes, it feels like a recession, there's not enough money, and then like her father's abscess and how that's doing or how her sister's doing in college, right? That this sort of non-hierarchization makes it more personal or geared towards an audience that's imagined, which is something that news in general shares, right? So the letter as this kind of um, different kind of news medium was also something that I was... Mm -hmm thinking about in this version um and that, yeah I'll stop there whether <laughs> but I, I could I could literally go on no it's fascinating I, I love it I had not thought about these things at all in those kinds of terms but it's fascinating I love the idea of bringing in the kind of element of um yeah, the history of the letter as a feminized genre and the idea of the kind of dehierarchization de- of, of news because all of that is obviously very relevant um also the idea of sort of making the world smaller. And I think, because I think that that is so much at play in the film in general is the the question of distance, right? I mean, this idea of how does one make palpable and material the sense of a, a very difficult and kind of impassable distance between the mother and the daughter, both physically, but then also, you know, perhaps psychologically, perhaps emotionally. I mean, these kinds of questions, right? And I think 
the film really succeeds in that largely to do with largely in the sense that despite the fact that the images are so um, obviously New York. And so, and, and in a certain sense, even though she is not particularly interested in kind of spectacularizing the city or, and we should talk about that more later, how she's filming the city, but um, maybe not falling into the kind of tropes of the romantic images of New York, even though she's not doing that, the images are really grasping, right? Like you're really drawn into them. And yet at the same time, the voiceover for me anyway, exists very much in tension with the images. Like you're always sort of pulled in two different directions and it kind of mimics the idea of being pulled in your mind towards the the home that's been left behind, right? On the one hand. And then the other direction is the sort of metropole that you're occupying now, which is of course a famous trajectory mm-hmm. for emigration for any number of things. Um, the thing about the soundtrack, which we haven't brought up yet, yeah, as Simon pointed out, there's no music, but mm-hmm. the soundtrack itself is very heavily composed. So again, similar to other films that we've seen so far where Ackerman does this, um, the soundtrack is is non-synchronous. So it's all mm-hmm. sounds that were recorded separately and then used to construct a kind of faux observational documentary soundtrack to go along with it, even though it's very constructed, um, which is... It's interesting because, again, in subtle ways, they the sounds don't match up in the ways that you expect them to. Like, they sort of do. It'll be like traffic sounds when you see cars, but they don't play exactly the way you expect. So it throws you a little bit. There's that. But then the other important aspect of the background sounds is the fact that, as Simon hinted, they often overrun the voiceover. Mm-hmm. And just as more background... Um, it's, it was fascinating for me going back to this, this time on the Criterion channel to have easy access to both the French language version and the English language version, because I, in all the times I'd seen it, had only ever seen the English language version. Had, had, what had you guys seen? Oh, interesting. I'd only seen the French language version. And the thing that's interesting about that is that um, I had subtitles on it. Well, and this so, is it. It's so different. Right? With the subtitles. Yeah. It's wild. No, it is totally wild to watch the English language um, version because I just didn't realize how mumbling it was and how you just didn't have any access to what or I heard understood maybe every third word right and that was happening in the French but my French is no, like wouldn't even be good enough if to listen to her in her sort of very thick accent um, speak it if it was fully <laughs> raised and blaring on the speakers Um, But then to listen to the English version confirmed another sort of thing that I was thinking about, which is the way that I just laid out the sort of way that the letter is this very personal kind of thing, right? And we were talking, and Kate, your point about feeling pulled in opposite directions by the soundtrack and the image, I think, gets to that point, which is the feeling of a kind of I'm in two worlds, I'm, my mind is on, you know, whatever is happening with my sister in college. Also, I loved when the cars would like think about turning onto a street and then maybe not or like kind of turn on. Those kinds of moments were so entertaining to me because it felt like a completely different narrative obviously was happening while Ackerman's worried about or Ackerman's mother is worried about something else. Um, but the thing that I was going to say about this sort of mumbling sense of the voice is that it works exactly against the sort of ruse of interiority that the letter gives us, right? So while a letter is giving us all these, all this sort of non-hierarchical personal information about people, then the mumbling sort of voice of it, you can't hear anything and it completely 
becomes this kind of background murmur as much as the cars in some sense. And as Simon, as you were saying, they like even overlap. And um, I was thinking about that in the way that you expect a letter, especially in film. And my references are all in like nowhere near sort of French new wave cinema. But um, like, for example, I was watching this film from 2020, which is this summer film made in India and it's this um, narrative of this poet, it's called Nasir and I should I recommend that you watch it if you haven't already. But the story is this protagonist is composing a kind of poetic letter to his wife and he's just seen her off on a trip. Um, and there's this juxtaposition between his sort of complex sensitive inner world, which is what which is the letters that you're getting from Ackerman's mother too, um, and his sort of daily life where he's a salesman. Um, he's living in a Hindu majoritarian city in a moment when state sanctioned violence against Muslims is very high and um, he's Muslim. And so the letters become a kind of contrast between his poetic sensibility, his sensitivity, his rich inner world and the kind of um, violent, brutish surroundings around him. Right. Which in some senses sounds like a description of news from home right, this kind of the letter as interiority thing. But then I think News From Home, the more times I watch it, does something completely different, right? Like on the one hand, as we're being promised this story about, or the story of Ackerman's mother and her relationship to her, it's actually, in, an, in another sense, right, like the um, she's reading her mother's letters to her, right? So that particular layer, and then, but it's in her voice, Right. So if we can think of um, the letter as this kind of medium genre between a book and sort of the immediacy of speech, I think um, uh, we could also think of the voice as a kind of somewhere between speech or what voice is, if we want to think about it independently, um, is it's distinct from the sort of speech of, and I mean, I guess to cite my sources, I'm thinking about um, Jacques Lacan's Seminar 3, and I'm thinking about the way that Bart is talking about the reality effect and authorship, but um, but thinking about the voice as like not quite speech, so if speech is a sort of communication or like the immediacy of actually conveying something, right, and um, the field of language as a sort of possible words that one could use, voice being the sort of middle ground, both as a kind of carrier of speech into language, um, but also the thing that exceeds it. And it's the kind of grain, the kind of excess, the thing that's not communicated, right? And it feels like that's what's being emphasized in that kind of mumble, the kind of refusal of clarity or the, um, yeah, the blocking of some sense that this speech would give you access to inner life itself. And Ackerman, I mean, all of that is fantastic. Thank you. I love it whenever anybody name checks a seminar from Lacan. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Um, I'm like, yeah, sure. Seminar three. We all know that one. Um, (laughs) That that one's my favorite. (laughs) No, I love it. It's fantastic. I know people talk about two a lot, but... Three is where it's at. Three is underrated. But no, to be serious, though, I was going to say that the um, just to add on to the the great point there is that when you watch the French language version, 
I don't think it's as easy to pick up the fact that Ackerman is doing a very particular kind of vocal performance of reading the letters, which is that she's not, it's the similar to what we talked about with Jean Dielman and Delphine Sarig's performance. It's, it's not that Ackerman is reading them to emphasize interiority, to emphasize kind of psychological concern or motivation or emotional emphasis. Instead, it's um, read as what she's called a kind of psalmody. So it's, it, it, she's sort of taking inspiration from the idea of a kind of particular kind of religious performance which involves, I forget exactly what the definition of psalmody is, but it has to do with reading psalms or religious canticles in public. And so it has a kind of like sing-songy, rhythmic quality to it. So she's doing that specifically to kind of both drain the specific reference out of the letters on the one hand, but then also to honestly make it a little more difficult to attach yourself to them in a kind of identifying way. It's like in the English language one, it's not only that the car and the traffic overrides the letters. And I, I, I completely agree, Lakshmi. I think the French, the English one is much more difficult to hear what she's saying. The French one, I was like, did they just, did the translators just like crank the volume so that they could translate every little, I'm not sure. But anyway, you get, you get, I would say at least 50% more dialogue in the French one than you do in the English one. Um, but yeah, it's not just that the car sounds and traffic are overriding the words. It's that the words themselves, she's saying them a little too quickly. They run together a little bit. It's just difficult to kind of keep up with them in that way. And as you say, Lakshmi, that very much kind of puts the emphasis on the voice, I think, as much as it does the content of the words. And again, the the idea of how that relates to the image. My dearest little girl, I just got your letter and I hope that you'll continue to write to me often. Anyway, I hope that you'll come back to me soon. I hope that you are still well and that you are already working. I see that you like New York and you seem to be happy. We are very pleased even though we like to see you again very soon. Tell us when you are thinking of coming back. At home is the same as ever, except that Sivan has the flu and is staying home, and that I am not too well. My blood pressure is low and I am taking medicine and vitamins. Today is my birthday. I am a little sad. It's Saturday and we are at the shop. It's very quiet and we are bored. This evening we'll go out to a restaurant with friends, and that's all for my birthday. Soon it will be yours, and I wish you the very best one in the world, as you can imagine. Write to me about your work and all about New York. I'm impatient to hear from you. The three of us send you hugs and kisses and think of you all the time. You're loving mother. I watched the French first, mm. just because it seemed more polite for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I will, and I also noticed the English is, was a lot harder to hear to the extent that I was actually like cranking up my, uh, my home stereo to try to, to, to try to make it out better. Chantal Ackerman, accidental ASMR pioneer. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Well, it's also weird because Criterion has them listed as the English one being the alternate version, yeah. but I don't, that's not correct to my understanding. I mean, I, I don't think they ever were kind of hierarchized like that. It's like that Ackerman recorded both soundtracks originally at the time and they were just released separately. So I don't think there's any idea that the French one is the correct version and the English one is not um, just for anybody who <laughs> is deciding which one to watch. Um, I also like the English language one in a certain sense, be- specifically because of how frustrating it is to watch. Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually think it is because like you, Simon, I would turn up the volume every time a new letter would come on only to be completely foiled when the soundtrack then of course just becomes louder too. <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. But it also like it forces you to disengage from the vocal track in a really particular way. It's like on the one hand, you're both being constantly made aware that you can't quite understand what's being said on the vocal track, but then it's also putting you in a position to kind of pay renewed attention to the image, right? It's like you're really much, I think you're much more aware of this push and 
pull between the kind of New York portion of the film and then the sort of mental pull towards Europe. Like that is a much more present element for me, I think, in the English one than the French one. Another aspect of uh, of sort of, I don't know, alienation and the, the content of the letters that I find super interesting uh, is that a few times you get um, Ackerman's mother's impressions of New York mm. that from what she knows from, I don't know, pop culture or news or whatever, just like, Oh, I hear it's dangerous. You know, you know, look after yourself. You know, I know it can be tough out there. And I just, I love which we, we can, I, I don't know if she, it's ever stated, but I, I, I'm, my assumption was that Ackerman's mother has never been to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the, uh, the juxtaposition of this uh, sort of her concern with these images that are like, by and large, like really placid, like people just minding their own business, hitting a ball down the street. Um, I mean, and even though it's like 1972 and 73 New York, like no one seemed like very little even noticing of the camera. I, I spent yeah. a lot of time scanning faces, seeing who who clocked the camera or even like, hey, it's pretty rare. Except on the subway. Except on the subway. Yes, exactly. except on the subway. really striking to me each time is that the people on the subway, which is one place where I feel like people actually really don't want to look at you at all. Like I've never encountered like anything could be happening on the subway and people will be staring at their feet really hard. Um, But this just a long take of like, I assume to have like two women holding a camera somehow felt like there was just immediate permission to look at them more in a way Mm. than if you're just wandering down the street with a camera, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I was really struck by just how long they held the gaze of the camera. There's the, probably the, the funniest part of News From Home is the man in the lime green like <gasps> golf outfit who gets on the Amazing subway. fit. Amazing fit. Cares at them like slack jawed for a solid <laughs> 10 minutes before then wandering back down the train. I was like, man... He is confused. I'm yes, not having it. <laughs> exactly. Women operate camera. <laughs> it's true. Oh man, I mean, I, it is fascinating though the question of the kind of people looking at the camera, and you know, and scholars again have sort of talked about the film in relation to. The other films like Hotel Monterey that Ackerman had already made, where again, you have the tension between the kind of like structural quality of the film, the sort of like really strict paradigm of like, film shot, single composition, long take, mixed with the kind of contingency of people coming in and out of the frame and whether they're going to look at the camera, what that means, Um, which again, also then introduces kind of ideas about like historicity, the actuality genre, right? The idea that this is, it's not a documentary in the traditional sense of what we today think we mean when we say documentary, but it absolutely harks back to the idea of the kind of actuality cinema, right? The sort of silent cinema mode of like, what does it mean to just put a camera down and capture people walking into the frame? And you you end up with a kind of like living photograph, right? It has such a sort of specific relation to that moment. Um, and anyway, so there's really some fabulous kind of examples of that throughout uh, the film. But then, you know, there's also really kind of like really interesting ideas about whether this film to invoke another sort of famous silent cinema genre, like whether this is a kind of city symphony film or whether it's like even sort of playing with that and then undoing it in a certain kind of sense, because the question of like the logic of the images and what the images are doing is an interesting one. Like I've seen a lot of critics sort of say, Oh, well, there's no overt logic to the images. It's just an image of a car and then an image of a building and then an image from the subway. And 
but then, you know, other people more recently, like I think Kenneth White has argued that there actually is this really <clears throat> kind of clear logic to certain of the images. And I, I mean, I think, I think a lot of what he says is quite convincing. And so I, like, I can rehearse some of those points too, but um, I think even just at a, as a kind of casual viewer, there are sort of different movements in the film. Like you get a really beautiful section in the middle, for example, where there's a whole sequences of shots. It's like dusk or kind of early night. And there's a whole sequence of shots um, through windows. It's like through a, a magazine store, through a diner window, through a pizza window. And it's like, it has a very kind of like Edward Hopper kind of, I mean, it's like, how can you not think of Edward Hopper in this um, kind of context of the alienated city and light through a beautiful window? I don't know. I mean, anyway, so I, I can come back and say some more about the the other things there. But what did you guys think? Do you think there's a logic to the way the images are put together in the film? Well, I guess I was going to ask that of you because I haven't watched as much of her later work. And so I was curious about how it's working through... I feel like I can't speak to that as much, but the thing, so for me, it feels completely like, uh, or the way that I read it is that it's this kind of, on the one hand, a track about like a maternal echo or a kind of attempt at tracing the, um, a place for herself. And I guess I'm reading this again through her kind of discussion of her relationship to her mother and the way that both, um, that she was a central figure in her life, but also that she felt like there wasn't a space for her because it was her mother's grief and it was her mother's trauma that sort of took up everything. And so film for her was a kind of way to, um, it was like her own world. And so the fact that the world that she built, especially in these sort of early scenes um, in, in this film, that it, I, I can't get over the fact that the letters that she's reading are her mother's words addressed to her. And so what we have is a kind of Chantal shaped hole there, right? Like we just have somebody else's words that um, tell us about this person and nothing in fact about her, um, her response to them. Right. So it constantly feels like what's being evacuated, evacuated is Ackerman herself. But then I think, the response or the place of where we can find a trace of her in, a, in addition to the voice is the structure. But that's why um, I was curious about whether you saw kind of repetitions later, because they're even just the, in the ones that I've watched, for example, um, I was catching the ways that certain framings looked similar between Jotu Elel and, and News From Home or um, Letters Home and but I don't feel like I have access to her entire work in the same way. So I was curious whether there was something underlying other than wandering the streets of New York and being aware that we were moving slowly from lower Manhattan to upper Manhattan and that, and then eventually just leaving. Right. And I was talking to Mike Metzger, who's somebody that Kate, you at least know, and he, we were watching this movie again last night, and he was saying so many New York movies have a sort of zooming in, and there isn't a zoom in this film, um, but then there is this kind of zooming out, right, or like leaving, or a, a constantly sort of distancing from the film. And so those were the kinds of logics that seemed inherent from what I could tell and multiple viewings, but I'd be curious if if you saw rhythms across her films that News From Home was working through. After my two viewings, I could not personally uh, grok a 
a legible tie between images and text. Uh, and, and in fact, I just kind of enjoyed the the lack of connection, I guess, uh, or I found a way to enjoy it as I, I feel like is, I, I think for a lot of viewers um, who are watching this for the first time, um, especially if this ends up being like your entry point into Ackerman, I think this is a good, it's a good way to, um, to ease yourself into the idea of how Ackerman eases you into the film and to, into like how to watch it essentially like you're i feel like every time i sit down to watch a new ackerman film for the first time i'm i spend the first time learning how to watch it and then i actually watch it mm-hmm. and uh this uh and uh, doing it the i know i'm way of uh, watching both versions in a row i thought was a great way to do that mm-hmm. yeah it's true <laughs> yeah she does she does certainly require some kind of maybe self-education from her spectators <laughs> <from her laughs> for sure um yeah, I mean, it's funny. I feel like the way I asked this question, it made it sound like I was going to be a magician revealing some grand logic behind the image <laughs> when I really don't actually have anything. Uh, but I... <laughs> well, I'm going to leave. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going right now. No. Um, I mean, I, basically, all I was just going to say was sort of that that I found it interesting reading um, Kenneth White's argument about the fact that that he, he kind of thought that maybe almost too much attention had been devoted in the... The history of the reception of the film to to specifically the voiceover and to specifically the mother daughter dynamics and that this had kind of like occluded its its history as a New York film and what that means, um, which I think is a little valid. I also think it tells you something about the fact that the voiceover is so important to the film. Like it is so great. Like it really is the kind of heart of the film in a certain way. It's really difficult almost to. Yeah, to pull yourself away from the kind of imaginary of the film, pulling you in that direction to focus on what the images are a lot of the time. Um, but no, I mean, he, he makes some interesting points about how there is actually uh, a section in the in the middle of the film. I'm not sure it's a little be a little difficult to kind of say how to give you markers to know what this is. But there's a section in the middle of the film where you're on a number of corners um, and it's you know that it's midtown. It's quite busy. It's like those famous New York corners where there's. 35 people all crossing the sidewalk <laughs> in one direction. Um, and you see a number of those in a row. And he had figured out that that's, uh, oh, I didn't write down the street corners, but it's like 40, it's like 50, something between 45th and 50 something streets and Amsterdam Avenue. I forget which, what it is, but the important mm-hmm. thing about it is that the grid, the corner there is actually the center of uh, the grid in Manhattan because Manhattan has this like, you know, for, for those of us who love it, we love it, but other mm-hmm. people find it a little intense. I love the Manhattan grid, but um, mm-hmm. it's a very particular kind of si- style of urban design, right? And so this is the actual center of the city and she moves around the four corners of that street three times. So you get 12 shots in a row that all kind of do this. And I, and I think there are more to that. I think there's more to say about that, particularly if you're someone who spent a lot of time in New York, it's hard not to kind of spend some energy trying to figure out where she is when she's shooting. Like oh, I find myself very much thinking that like the, when there's the long, she's, she's doing her, the, what tracking. Will, the tracking shot, what will become a kind of signature shot for her is the tracking shot out of a moving car, the side of yeah. the car. And she's up moving up. Up ten, yeah. you see, you knew it's up ten. I figured that yeah. out as well. But it's at first, yeah. you're like, is it? Is she going down on the day? Whatever. So yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. But like, this is part of the the game of it too. Is there there is a kind of sense of a like um an in in community is a little strong, but like in knowledge, right? It's like if you if you are from New York and you already know this and you have the material coordinates, you have a bit of a different relationship to this film than you would if you were watching it from outside. And again, that that speaks to something about Ackerman's lack of interest in 
presenting any kind of totalizing view on New York, any kind of like summary packaging of the city. It, it, and the, the film is remarkable for the fact that it really avoids and eschews any major um, uh, tourist sites. You don't see any kind of recognizable New York images in it at all. Um, and uh, which again is why it's difficult sometimes to tell where you are. But um, so, there's, so there's, there's this kind of fact. And sorry, I know I was, oh, the zooming out, the zooming in. Yeah, this idea that like she, the film is very uh, stolidly like on the ground. We have no kind of overhead shots of the city, which are famous in New York films, right? That you get a kind of vantage of the entire city, the skyline. You do get a skyline shot here, but only at the end and it's clouded by the time you get it. So otherwise, prior to that, she's always in the city. You're on the ground. The grid, which purports to make the city easy to navigate, actually really kind of makes it difficult to see where you are from the ground in the city. And so it's this play always between kind of like being lost, being found, locating yourself, sort of not knowing where you are. And this, again, it, Lakshmi, totally plays into what you were saying of this question of like the Chantal-shaped hole at the center of the film, which is also having to do with the idea that, yeah, the filming, the kind of cinematography is sort of always pointing back to her as maybe the driving force here, but again, always kind of an absent center. And the film plays with that. You see her at one point briefly in a window in the subway, her and Babette Mal I know, Babette Mal not very briefly, shimmeringly, uh, in a mirror. Um, and the, oh, and that and that this also links up interestingly too to the way that the soundtrack is designed, where Ackerman reading the voiceover letters, the fact that she has the sounds of traffic and everything over write the the words, it almost is meant to like it implies that the sounds of the city are over, like are drowning her out as she's reading the letters, as if she was reading from this kind of actual material place in the city. But of course, that's a fabrication, right? It's like this creation of the spot for Ackerman's subjectivity that's never, never totally comes into being, never takes hold fully, which again, I think also maps up interestingly with the idea of the letter writing. Because I think Lakshmi, you talk so beautifully about the idea of like the middle, the middle voice, um, what the letter is and does. And I think Ackerman, I mean, for me, and maybe we can talk about this more in relation to the next film too. For me, I think Ackerman is really drawn to the letter specifically because it is yet another tool that lets her kind of break down any sort of clear ideas about like set subjectivity and objectivity. The letter is always like crossing that boundary, right? It's like, it is of the self, but it's already on the way to the other. It's, it's not, it's not itself until it's read by the other, but you mm -hmm. see what I'm saying? It's like an impossible line always between her and the other. The letter is like, it breaks down any kind of static idea of a, of a boundary or a whole identity um, at the same time as maybe it reinforces it through the distance. I was going to say two things. One, just to gush over the shot when we do see Babette and Ackerman, it happens twice, I think, and it happens. And the only times you see them is when it's darkness. And so then the reflection inside, like the overhead light allows just the briefest reflection of, I assume Babette's ring that she's wearing that helped me find the lens. Um, or I don't, I'm not totally sure, but that, but it disappears as soon as they arrive at a station, which also I loved, right? Like one minute there's the sort of faint outline of a camera and a person holding it. And then it's just like bright green light and the human disappears as though like arriving somewhere is the erasure of the person too. It's like, uh, it gives me goosebumps now when I see it. <laughs> um, but I was also going to say something about um, 
Kate, your sort of last point, which I really liked, and I think um, was going more in a more articulate way <laughs> to what I was saying with the whole stuff about the voice, is that it's also that these are her mother's letters um, and the kind of Chantal-shaped hole at the center of it is, is and that there's something about the originary fact that even the kind of, that the only way to get to Chantal as a person is through this sort of mechanical mediation, right? Yes. That there isn't, um, this is, which is to say that it's completely in that sense, undermining any claim of the letter being some personal truth about her and instead um, makes the construction of anything that we could call Chantal itself, the like effect of this kind of, you know, only mediated through either reflection or through her mother's letters or through the grid of the city and the place that she might have been. Right. Um, then it, it's every level of um, the whole, not just as a kind of absence in her mother's life, but also her physical presence, the trace of her sort of physical presence in the city and where she would have been on the grid, right? Like it's just a kind of, um, we can retroactively map on the grid where she could be, but it doesn't um, feel like that tells us anything about her as a person, which I really love. Yeah, and this is maybe one of the last points I wanted to add here too about the film is just to build on that as well, Lakshmi, is that it's interesting. I think so much of the, um, at least from my vague memory of kind of uh, going through this scholarship in the past, is that it seems to me scholars often talk about Ackerman reading the uh, letters from the mother as a way of kind of, or or as inevitably sort of facing the mother sort of, that like, you know, Ackerman's voice then sort of overrides the words of the mother, makes the words of the mother her own and sort of what this means. But it's interesting to me going back to it and having read recently another way in which Ackerman speaks about this question of her relationship to the mother as um, I think in, in these terms, Ackerman was talking about how when she was young or from when she was very young, she, she was already had in her mind this idea that her mother had gone through this horrible tragedy. And so she couldn't, she couldn't bear to kind of impose on the mother in any way. She couldn't be angry. She couldn't be sad. She couldn't do any of these things. And so this, of course, sort of playing into the idea of a later struggle to emancipate herself from the mother. As she says, she never really emancipated from the mother. And it's not that she blames her mother. It's that she's, she says, maybe I just couldn't do it myself, right? I mean, who knows? But um, anyway, so thinking about these things, it's interesting to go back to the the voiceover in News From Home, because then to me now, it almost feels like it's not so much Ackerman effacing the mother's words or content to me, it's more that Ackerman can only speak in the words of the mother. Exactly. Yeah. That's yes. like that. This is the, it dictates what Ackerman is like Ackerman mm -hmm. with quotation marks around it. Um, mm -hmm. What she is in a certain sense. So it's yet another kind of reflection, yet another kind of mirage. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's why, sorry, this is why I was like, shout out to seminar three is because <laughs> The unconscious is originally, you know, received from the other, right? Like, yeah. that's why I was referencing it, is that, that these signifiers come from the other that, like, found the, that form the sense of what the subject is. Mm. And that we can then reproduce and say, like, I sound like my mother or something. Or, you know, that there are traces um, that we can see, but that literally reading out the letters that a mother writes to her is like so on the nose for yeah. this exact argument that like the sense of the self is completely 
the other's projection. Okay, yeah. I'll stop now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I, I just, I, I find it so fascinating to think of, um, you know, I was just thinking about literally everything you were saying, Lakshmi, and then just comparing this to just, I don't know, I think about the whole history of, you know, people in, you know, because we're, 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 we're back here to uh, 1976, so Ackerman's still quite young. Um, and just think of all the ways you could, you know, go to New York and make a film about New York that is also sort of about yourself or your family. Um, think about all the ways people have done that. And like Ackerman's approach to this is so, uh, so on another level to what so many other people are bringing to the table where there's not, it's not only not uh, self-centric, it's mm-hmm. like self-annihilating in a mm-hmm. sense. And she, you know, she totally in a way, I mean, obviously she makes herself present through, you know, the presence of her voice, but like to sort of uh, this sort of self-obviation and d- digging instead into these uh, r- really complex family dynamics, instead of getting caught up in, you know, I'm a person in my mid twenties in New York city. And isn't that exciting? <laughs> you know? It's like, that, that should clue you in about just how totally distinct and yeah. unique her approach is. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. Especially when you think about this film next to something like Je Tu Allow, right? Which is only two years earlier where she's- Yeah. Where she couldn't playing. be more present. Yeah, yeah. exactly. She's literally playing this but even there then, of course, right? Like, especially when you see it next to News From Home, it's like the figure of Julie in um, G2LL becomes just another sort of obfuscation, right? Like it's another mm-hmm. kind of mask or set of mirrors or reflections. Um, but then I feel like before we wrap up this film, we should definitely talk about the ending of News From Home because we haven't yes. done that. Oh, yeah. my God. So I don't know. So Simon, yeah. as someone who is basically new to the film here, what did, what did you think of the ending? How did you find it? I mean, I just think that more film should end with a six-minute take from the Staten Island Ferry. <laughs> Honestly, longer. That's, Even, it's, it's longer, I think, than six minutes. Isn't is it, it like longer? A, I think it's a whole reel, it, so it's eleven minutes at least. I think. Yeah, it's eleven. Yeah, it's whatever it is. It's it's it's. Um, I don't really have any deep thoughts about it, except that it's. Uh, I you know more 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 movies should end with a nice long exhalation like that. Um, and also, just as a reminder of. Um, of how quickly you can get away from something as big as New York. Uh, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's easy to forget. Mm-hmm. Well, especially after a film where there's been just one other tracking shot, right? And so it's been so static and then suddenly mm-hmm. it feels like, oh my God, the speed is overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Again, Ackerman has trained you well by the end yeah. of the film. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, we have like, yeah, the the static tripod moving in cars, which does happen a fair bit. We have subway shots and car shots. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think maybe two tracking shots, but they're very minimal. And then, yeah, you cut to the ending here. And it took me a second to realize the, when I rewatched it again recently, it took me a second. I was like, oh, my God, are we already at the famous final shot? Because it it's hard to tell at first what's happening. It's like the shot is kind of dark and the camera is sort of rocking and like already or like something is different here. And it takes you a second to realize as the as the pulls back that it's on the Staten Island Ferry the sound is different it feels a little kind of like I don't know how to say it like it um yeah less oppressive it's still very kind of city sounds but now you have the ocean and the birds and we're pulling back and then yeah we basically just get this very long sequence where the city gets sort of smaller so on the one hand you have a kind of a view of the skyline but it's a very cloudy day 
and it is a, it's a slow long take and so as you move i anyway find that it it's a very kind of like emotionally affecting take it's like you move through a lot of different states in this i mean people have written about the fact of the final sequence the directionality of it um going west to east kind of mimics or invokes the idea of returning to the point of origin of the letters right like returning home away from america back to europe and also in a certain sense it's the reverse direction of um earlier Jewish immigrants to New York, right? Moving from Ellis Island to the city upon arrival, this is moving backwards from that. So it invokes all of these kinds of questions, but then it also just, I don't know. I mean, it's just such a beautiful image. Like it, and yeah, the sense of kind of being lost in the city, both joyously and in real loneliness. It's like something about getting onto this boat at the end. I don't know. It's, it's tough mm-hmm. to categorize. Yeah. I don't know. Lakshmi, what do you, what do you think about it? Yeah. Um, so first, it took me, it, it's also destabilizing because, yeah, you don't know what you're on, at least. There's a couple of shots like that that I find particularly destabilizing. One is when we suddenly come out in the middle of traffic. Yes. It's kind yeah. of, um, and then suddenly we're just in the middle of speeding cars after being on the sidewalk and in kind of empty spaces for a long time. But that shot, um, and then once we're on the boat, it takes a second and it actually only when you, for me, only when I registered the sound of the water and the sound of like waves lapping was then it helped me locate myself, which is one of the few moments I think in the film in which the sound actually helped me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> Literally never know what's going on otherwise. Um, but also this time looking at it as somebody that, has only been to New York after um, 9-11 and that the skyline doesn't look like that anymore. Um, but obviously for people that grew up in that time and or think, you know, um, for whom the New York skyline is, looks a very particular way, even though I'm sure I've watched a lot of New York movies in my life, I didn't feel the weight of the Twin Towers the way that I did this time watching that um watching that scene because it just feels like that's all I was contemplating as it disappeared into the distance right that it's so in that moment the skyline looks in a very particular way which now and ever I I think I first arrived in New York in like maybe 2009 or something and there was still you just feel the weight of this hole in the architecture this like absence often you know accentuated by the two beams of light being shot into the sky um, to mark the place of them. And so, I don't know, something about that, that was a thing that I was thinking about the last time I watched this. Yeah, absolutely. Now that you say that, I remember just on this rewatch being quite struck by the presence of the the two towers for sure. And I I mean, I don't know, it's interesting. I feel like even again, to maybe return to like the unconscious or psychoanalysis, which I mean, I think people people who don't um, don't like find themselves called to psychoanalytic readings may be rolling their eyes a little bit at us, but <laughs> I, I don't think that that's fair. I mean, I think Ackerman. I, I mean, a there is an entire there's like libraries of work um, written about Ackerman from a psychoanalytic perspective, and some of that is maybe written in the kind of earlier mode of film studies and psychoanalysis, which is not always it 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 doesn't live on always in the same kind of way that you would want it to. It's particular to its moment, but um, I still think that, it, and we can talk about this later in relation to other 
other films too. But Ackerman, Ackerman went to analysis for most of her adult life. She was very, she was very well read in these areas. She was really interested in these questions to her. I think the frameworks of psychoanalysis felt very relevant to her own experience of her mother and her relationships and her family. And so if you, if you need that kind of grounding to let someone make a critical interpretation like this, it's there. I mean, these are, we're not bringing things in that don't exist. And the idea that um, I think in this final sequence here, Simon called it an exhalation. And I think part of why it feels like that is that you have this sense of moving again from from a grid, even when there is movement through the grid that sometimes can feel quite freeing and quite fun. It very much is a grid. It's a framework. It's this kind of the heavy sense of the city on top of everything and people everywhere, right? This kind of like intense sense. And then you're on this boat and you're moving back slowly. And I don't know about you guys, but I found it almost soporific. Like I was like, kind of, it makes you almost like sleepy. You're so relaxed. And there's again, like the sense of, yeah, the return to the oceanic, right? The idea of like, in Freud, this term stands in for the kind of pre-subjective space between before someone has developed into a subject on their own. And you're in this space where the boundary between object and subject isn't yet relevant. It doesn't exist yet. You're just in this kind of space of plenitude. And I feel like the film, I think whether or not it actually means you to feel that at the end, it's certainly kind of playing with it, right? It's certainly because there's no soundtrack, there's no voiceover in that final section. It's just the quiet. It's just the birds. It's just the movement of the boat. Um, But sorry, Simon, were you going to add No, I was was just going to ask you if uh, you think the ending represents uh, a return to our original mother, the sea. That's what Ackerman thought, right? Anyway. Uh, <laughs> News from uh, home solved. Yeah. yeah, my, yeah there we go. Um, I, my, my last silly remark about uh, News from Home is that um, if, you, if you're looking to pair it up with another film that isn't just the other audio track version of the same movie, um, I recommend another film from 1976 from the same year, almost exactly the same length. Uh, also featuring lots of great footage of uh, of New York and its citizens, and that's uh, not Taxi Driver. It's God Told Me To by Larry. Oh Cohen. my God! Yeah, you should. Everybody should watch God Told Me To. Have you ever seen this film, actually? No. On December twenty fifth, nineteen fifty three, a child is born, a virgin birth. Tomorrow, all civilization will tremble under His almighty power. He must be obeyed. Oh, it's, it's absolutely bananas. <laughs> and it's and it's also on on Criterion, so you can literally just watch one right after the other. It is. I'm very much about also too, like alienation, kind of being in a crowd, but being lonely and isolated. Oh yeah, totally. And some yeah. very interesting gender stuff. Oh yeah, God told me to. Everybody, go for it. talk about our second film of the program jumping ahead a decade and uh, into a completely different type of film uh the film is called letters home and i guess it would be uh, kate is it is it sufficed uh, would you say that the, the the safest simple description would be filmed play uh, yes, although I'll, I'll break it down a little here in the overview of information because it's slightly more complicated than I think yeah. even I understood that it was the making of this film. But yeah, in a very basic sense, we could say filmed play. Um, yeah, were you going to say something else before I start here? 
Well, no, it just I think it's uh, it's just important that people understand that the um, I guess the staging, the um, the arrangement of of the text, etc., is coming from someone who's not Ackerman. Indeed, yeah, I'll, I'll run through it. And in fact, it's coming from more than one person, multiple Indeed. more than one person who is not Ackerman. Um, so the the beginnings of this project uh, emerge in the letters that Sylvia Plath sent to her mother. Uh, Aurelie, Aurelie Plath, I believe, Aurelia Plath, um, from 1953, 1950, 1963, something like that, uh, which were later published by the mother. She edited and published them uh, with some of her own text written with it. Uh, and then that was later turned into a play by a woman named Rose Lehman Goldenberg, uh, which was then staged in Paris with Delphine Seyrig as the mother and Delphine's niece, Coraline Seyrig as uh, Sylvia Plath. And I, I, who knows how true this is. According to Ackerman, Delphine asked Ackerman to direct that version of the play. Ackerman said no. Uh, and so the woman who ultimately directed it was an actress and well-respected director named Francoise Merrill. Uh, and, and so, yeah, the film played in Paris in 1984 at the Petit, Petit Théâtre. Uh, and, there's different versions of how this became a film. So <laughs> Delphine came back and asked Ackerman again to produce the documentation of the play. She said, if you're not directing the play, that's fine, but could you film it for us? Um, we're hoping to broadcast it on television. And so Ackerman uh, said yes and showed up to film one of the versions of the play, I believe in November of 1984, one of the performances. And she was assigned uh, a young helper named Claire Atherton, who up to that point had been working uh, off and on with uh, Delphine Seyrig's video collective, uh, the Simone de Beauvoir collective. Apparently, Claire Atherton's mother uh, knew went to school with Delphine Seyrig in Lebanon when they were young. And uh, so Claire Atherton was quite young. She had done a little bit of video work, not much. And she, as she says, she showed up uh, to film this thing with Chantal Ackerman. They had effectively no time to prepare. Um, and Atherton was shooting it. And Ackerman was sort of trying to give her directions. But obviously, once the play started, they couldn't do that. And so they were filming on the fly. Ackerman said, I'll just try to help you keep it in focus as this goes. That's all I can do. And But, the, but what came out of that was that um, Ackerman, at the end of it, said to Claire Atherton, every choice that you made is a choice I would have made. Like you, you and I are clearly very in sync about where you're putting the camera, what's happening. As Claire Atherton said, she was like, this is great. The film wasn't even in focus though. Like it was, at the end, it was not, not a successful version of it. Um, so I have to admit, I couldn't figure out if that version was broadcast ever or if anything came of it with that version it may have been this film however that you can see now is not that version which makes sense because that's all the information i had found and i was watching this and i was like how on earth did they film this with a live audience like that makes no sense no they went back and filmed it again in 1986 uh and that they had a, it was a shoot of several weeks to film the one that exists now, which makes a lot more sense. Um, and we can talk about how the film was kind of constructed and put together. But the last thing I'll say about it that's super interesting as background is that uh, Claire Atherton points out because it was shot on a kind of video called Umatic video, um, I guess they couldn't copy the footage or the rushes without losing quality. 
So what this meant was that they couldn't see the shots in advance when they were editing. They had shot all this footage and then they just had to sort of edit by sequence, like directly and chronologically through the film. So they couldn't, they couldn't, yeah, they couldn't edit with like a plan. So once something was edited, it was edited and then they would arrive to the next set of footage and they just had to edit that. So that gives you some sense of like the kind of tightrope that they were walking with this film. I mean, which is, I don't know, to me, it actually makes me sort of more impressed because there's some very kind of fine grain like editing going on in the film. Um, this is not Ackerman's more traditional kind of long take scenography. This is quite different. So um, yeah. And then of course, and just to finish off the story with Atherton, of course, Atherton, Atherton becomes Ackerman's longtime editor and works with her consistently through the rest of her career. Um, so we'll, we'll hear from Atherton again, but, um, but yeah, that's the beginning of this film. Um, so I assume all of us had just seen this film the first time for this. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I think it's important to establish that this is definitely not one of the more discussed. This is an Ackerman deep cut. <laughs> uh, this is uh, for the real heads only. Um, and yeah, the, the, this, I think it's also important to establish like the, I think to my mind, the thing that really sets it apart from everything else we've seen so far is just that, the because it's a it's a film play and uh Delphine Serig and uh her niece um Tabarnak Coralie uh, Coralie Coralie thank you and her niece uh, Coralie uh don't modulate the performances really for to what you would consider like film acting they they keep it theatrical um and it's another one of those, I, 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 again, I felt for the first, especially for the first 20 minutes or so, like I really had to take the time to just accept that this was the acting style and just kind of roll with it. I think once you're able to do that and once you're able to get with um, the, we, we were talking about news from home and the sort of the, 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 the rhythm of the sort of uh, a relaxed rhythm of when the text shows up. And this is the total opposite. It's a barrage. It is an absolute barrage of text. Uh, you have the two actresses talking uh, sometimes over each other. Subtitles have never been more helpful, by the way, <laughs> uh, than uh, than with this film. Uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes in opposition, sometimes sort of almost combining as one voice. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot more stimulus here uh, than we like obvious stimulus than we were getting with with, with news from home, and it's a lot to take in. Um, and that's even before you start thinking about uh, potentially any kind of biographical reading, which you'd be tempted to throw in there, mm-hmm. which, you know, how can you not? Yeah, I don't know. I, I have lots of thoughts, but, um, but Lakshmi, did, uh, would you want to talk a little bit about your experience of the film? In comparison to my like absolute obsession with news from home, which I feel like is a completely different film every time I watch it. And to be fair, I've only watched letters home like one and a half times. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> I also watched it one and a half times. <laughs> But yeah, there was, and your explanation of them not being able to edit with a plan, I feel like really put something in place for me that I don't know that I can articulate yet. But it, I think one of the things was that it felt like the rhythm was off or it felt like there wasn't the same kind of rhythm when I have watched other Ackerman films and felt like, as Simon said, it like teaches you to watch it in a particular way. Um, I didn't. This film, I didn't feel like it um, unfolded in any way other than the story I already knew, right, of, like, Plot's life a little bit. Um, 
But the other thing that I was thinking as you both were talking was almost the things that are interesting to me about the film are almost all the things around it rather than what was in the film um, in a sense. Like I'm so interested in, Simon, as you said, the voices that overlap um, and the way that that is not just manifest on, or that manifests in the, um, on screen, but is also thinking about the way that this is a film um, of a set of letters written by Platt to her mother, who then re-edited them and made them into a book, which is in a way a kind of other ordering of what Ackerman does to her mother's letters with news from home, right? And then, but also... Also, my other confession is that I have not read The Bell Jar, but <laughs> apparently, <laughs> but the Wikipedia summary sounds shockingly like this film. And so that was something that made me also be like, okay, maybe I should go read The Bell Jar now. It seems unlikely, but um, <laughs> but that kind of continuing remediation of this narrative over and over and over again before we get to the film itself. That is really interesting to me. Um, but I will say that I think both with the sort of theatrical staging and then just the weird, somehow the lighting felt, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, just theatrical? not pleasing. Yes. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> the technical term. <laughs> I mean, this is what is so strange about about trying to kind of critically discuss this film. And I, I kind of guarantee you that this is why there isn't a lot of critical writing about this film. I searched. All I could find was a reference to, um, oh, I think it was a Jacques piece written for Cahiers du Cinema in the 80s. But that was all I could find. I really don't think there's much writing about this film. Um, I think a lot of it is because it's frustrating to critics, particularly critics who are used to writing about Ackerman from a kind of a tourist vantage point, because you can't it's impossible to make claims about what is Ackerman's choices here and what are Ackerman's choices here and what are the choices of the other people who've made the Mm -hmm. film. I mean, even the music, like there's, there's music that runs throughout it. And some of it to me seems likely that it was maybe Ackerman's choice. There's kind of classical composers that she's used elsewhere. So maybe those are Ackerman's choices, but then there's also kind of like music meant to invoke sort of contemporary uh, scenes at the time, like going to a dance, and there's this kind of music from the 1950s playing in the background or 40s that, that doesn't, to me, seem like something Ackerman would choose. So it's very difficult. And the lighting, again, it doesn't seem at all like thing, something that Ackerman would design. So it's a difficult kind of text to engage with. I think, I don't know, I think there are a number of ways in that, to me, still make it interesting, particularly if we're thinking about kind of her development as a as an artist or how, or the kind of critical question of how people respond to Ackerman at all. Because I do think, as you say, I mean, the, the temptation to read it in terms of autobiography or connection to Ackerman's own story is still heavily here. And I guarantee you Ackerman knew that. Like, I mean, in accepting this and spending weeks shooting the film, like Ackerman still knew that even though this wasn't her material, it would very much echo with the kinds of things that she's put forth about her own life in this very kind of like, programmed in playful way through the, her whole history. And she even in her description of the film for um, the famous pajama interview with Nicole Brené, which is a great interview. Uh, she describes it as like her third film about suicide, I think, or her second film about <laughs> suicide. Like this is for her. It's like she connects yeah. these things and, so, and to her own life. And so anyway, um, or her own kind of like emotional state, I should say. But um, 
anyway, so there's that question, which maybe we can talk about a little bit more. But I think for me, the, the interest in terms of thinking about how she relates to this material as a director, a lot of it has to do with the kind of spatial breakdown of what's happening on the stage. It's like you get a very early shot of the, the entire kind of establishing shot of the stage. And this, the set design is very sparse. You have like a back wall painted to look like clouds, some books in a corner, and I think like a bed and that's sort of it. And I think that's with maybe one other brief exception, that's the only time you get that kind of like static, you know, theatrical documentation shot of the whole stage. The rest of it are these very kind of like complicated movement sort of plans or shot plans that Ackerman is undertaking to create like scenes and spaces within the stage and within the kind of like imaginary of the play, if that makes any sense. And I think whether or not the play itself is always... I don't know. I mean, I found it engaging enough, certainly. I mean, and I think we should talk more about how the text is working and like the overlapping of the dialogue and the letters, because that all matters. But whether or not you find the play engaging, I do think Ackerman is fairly successful with like creating different kinds of imagined spaces or scenes within the theatrical staging, which to my thinking is a little bit more successful than the average like filmed play would be you know it's like the camera she sets up the camera so that she's shooting in ways that obviously wouldn't be possible if a live audience was watching the film um and I don't know I mean I think there's some real tension sometimes between the mother and the daughter figure and it's even just at a basic level it's kind of fascinating to compare the dynamic between Delphine Seyrig here and Coraline Seyrig and the other mother and daughter kind of pairings that Ackerman has in the rest of her career. So there's interesting tension here, even if it doesn't yield a kind of traditional mm-hmm. auteurist reading of Ackerman's work. Yeah. I think the most interesting source of tension is it's, and maybe this is just because we're talking about it in a combination with news from home. So it's on my mind, but again, returning to um, distance and connection and the ways in which um, they, and again, I assume a lot of this is down to the original staging, but I, I, I really couldn't be sure. Um, the way that um, Sylvia and her mother are presented as, uh, you know, there, there are times when they're, one is addressing the other from across the stage, but then at, at, there's other times where there's, uh, there's a particular shot, for instance, where there's actually, uh, no, for once, no dialogue at all. And there's this incredibly moving moment when um, when Delphine uh, Serig reaches out to her niece, they just just touches her on the shoulder, mm-hmm. and it's just I found that to be an unbearably moving moment. And maybe that speaks to the the the, the fact of you know that the perhaps the the text is doing more work than it really needs to to uh, mm-hmm. to get us into that space. I yeah, I think the small gesture was also what I was thinking about as. Um, so we were talking, and Kate, you've already, with your sort of getting us to think about it, even in this way, two things made me more excited about it in retrospect. Okay. <laughs> One was I was thinking about the sort of nursery rhymes and the songs yeah. that um, that are hummed and the um, sound and the humming in Sotmaville and the way that mm. that so the playfulness that she brings to suicide there and the playfulness that she brings here, I feel like. That sort of whimsy absurdity of it actually makes me feel like the sort of, I want to say the word 
blousy about the right <laughs> about the lighting but I don't know that that's the word I'm looking for but like just kind of like <laughs> no I feel I feel like that does a good job to capture the sort of ephemeral quality of the 80s that is yeah. like there in this film the blouse bla- they're not none of them are wearing crazy blouses but blousy yeah. does a good job you're like over yeah weirdly I feel like I know what you mean yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though I don't know that it's a word, but anyway. It's like if, it's like if the Golden Girls was a lighting scheme. Yes! That's what this, yes! <laughs> I mean, That's look, th- there's there's a universe not too far from ours where, you know, Ackerman, uh, you know, looking for work, willing to take just about anything, did handle like a couple seasons of Golden Girls. Right. Oh, we could dream. Um, but I was going to say another, <laughs> Simon, like your point about that sort of very touching um, hand gesture and another moment, a moment that really stuck out, stuck out to me was when um, Sylvia is talking about how she, in towards the end, um, saying, you know, Ted Hughes wants to sort of Um, study zoology and he wants to sort of go down this academic route and give up sort of like the literary world and if I would be able to write if only he did anything like feed the children or whatever and it um we have a shot of Delphine's face and and she has this she both which again I mean of course it's her right so she's both able to convey a mother's frustration with a daughter repeating her mistakes. There's like a quiet sigh, but she also does it in a like wooden way so that it feels as though that's um, a staged response to this sort of staged (laughs) reading, right? So it both highlights this immediately particular personal response and, um, points to the kind of repeat repetitive structure of not only it happening in her life and her daughter's life, but feels like a sort of, you know, um, broader sigh or something like, a oh, so many women have had to d- deal with this. Like it's right. Like we are here, we are again. Um, and I think that would also not have been caught if you were watching it in the theater, right? Like that's mm. something that film can do is give you the close up. It can give yeah. you that that minor gesture. And that makes it feel particularly cinematic in a way that it's not just a sort of staging, uh, yeah. a recording of a play or something. Well, and the other thing that, I mean, again, this question of like whether the rhythm always works, I think is an important one, but certainly the other quote unquote cinematic element here has to do with the the editing plan and its relation to the dialogue, right? The relation to the way the women speak. Because often, and again, I didn't have time to review it fully today, so I don't have the details perfectly in my mind. But from what I remember, it's that there's a lot of the the kind of back and forth between the women. And and it's hard to explain because it shifts so frequently throughout the film, but often it'll be that um, you know, Sylvia or Coraline is reading a letter as Sylvia and then Delphine as the mother will read a sentence in the letter and they'll go back and forth. But then other times it's that they're actually saying the same dialogue, just one second apart. Or sometimes it's that, yeah, the mother is breaking in with her own dialogue. And so it's actually, you have to do a lot of mental work as a spectator to keep up with what is happening from kind of one line to the next, just who is saying what and what time period you're in, because often they're shifting between different time periods and places, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. 
And then into that, kind of Ackerman and Atherton and others will will also throw the sense of kind of rapid edits that often will punctuate. Delphine, for example, coming in to say sort of one line in response, you get this kind of like sing song punctuation uh, call and response sort of mo- mode sometimes from the dialogue, which again, I you know, for me, it, it often works. I think it might work. I don't want to say better necessarily than than in the theater, but it certainly works differently than you would than it would um, seeing it performed live. Um, so I don't know. I found some of that successful. I mean, the question of like the emotionality or the sort of like engagement of the play or of the film, it's interesting. I have to admit the theatrical performance stuff didn't, it didn't, didn't bother me. It didn't stand out to me as something that, that was a, a, a bug rather than a feature of the film necessarily, which may have to do with the fact that for me, Ackerman, Ackerman's eighties films, the, the performance stuff starts to shift generally anyway. Like she's, she's by the time you get into the eighties, you're much more into this kind of space of like, her working in the kind of musical mode and the like very, the sort of visual pleasure mode and the very kind of like, it's much more expressive than the earlier films. Again, expressive in such a sense that it doesn't reduce down to a kind of like interiority or kind of strict character rationale, but it's a very different performance style than the earlier stuff. So maybe that's why it didn't kind of stand out to me or something. But then, um, I don't know. Yeah, it's not, you still do get the sense throughout certainly that it is not... uh, that these are different choices than Ackerman would have made herself if she had been designing this thing from the ground up. Certainly. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Well, the, yeah, it, it's also interesting to think about, um, you know, that there have been biopics about Sylvia Plath and this yeah. is like well-trod territory for like sort of more conventional narrative films or biopics or whatever. And um, I guess the, the, the way in which I, I, I guess I find the whole project um, worth worthy or worthwhile is just that, um, I loved, and I, uh, this is the part that really seems to be in line with Ackerman's project or whatever, that the, the text is really, is almost exactly equally about, um, uh, about Plath's mother as it yes. is about Sylvia Plath, yeah. um, which is just something that no, uh, no other representation of the story would ever have time for, mm-hmm. uh, certainly not for equal space, you know, it'd be re- reduced to, uh, to a bit of establishing stuff in, in, in the first act that you would then jettison or whatever. Um, and as much as like the style is not necessarily what Ackerman would go for, I think this sort of more egalitarian treatment yeah. of, uh, of the story is very much in her wheelhouse. And mm-hmm. that was, that was the aspect in which I, I thought it was worthiest maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, again, I think it, it's clear why Ackerman would have said yes to this project. It's, you know, I think Lakshmi hinted at some of this as well, but as you get further through it, again, the kind of cycles of the cycles of, of Plath moving between depression and like exaltation and excitement. And I mean, this very much maps onto kind of material that we'll see Ackerman drawing on from her own life or our material that she kind of puts into the structures of her films. Um, there's that, but then also the concerns with domesticity, you know, the idea of Plath increasingly reporting on, um, yeah, both life with Hughes, but then life without Hughes afterwards with the two children and the kind of financial concerns and um, really being sort of trapped in this kind of increasingly difficult cycle of um, motherhood and domesticity, even as she loves it, it still becomes very imprisoning. You know, I mean, I think Ackerman very much would have felt drawn to this and, yeah, I don't know. Even as even as it it obviously is a little different than the the history from her own family, but um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I feel like I'm just <laughs> wanting to say, I guess that it's that I find the film affecting, even as it sort of 
is not uh, certainly not going to be the top of any list of like great Ackerman mm-hmm. projects. Yeah. The last thing I'd say is I I think actually the most distancing aspect is what you mentioned earlier, Kate, which is the soundtrack. Yeah. Just because it is so even though it is you know Schumann and uh, composers that she you know will have occasion to talk about more later. Um, it's really high in the mix and it's really, uh, it's yes. really prominent during like some pretty, like obviously emotionally difficult material, which makes it hard not to notice. Yeah, it's true. And it's a little, um, I mean, again, this is why maybe it was a choice of Ackerman's to do it this way is that it is a little presentational. It is a little weird. Like it is how to say it. Like there's, um, it'll be things like her talking about, uh, looking after the children and you'll have like babies crying on the soundtrack. And it's, Hard to tell, again, if it's like maybe just an oddly done choice, like a choice that doesn't work very well, or if it's a choice that Ackerman is making specifically a little too on the nose in order to kind of create a bit of a distancing effect. It's a little bit, I can't really tell. Um, but Lakshmi, what were you going to say? Um, the baby crying I want to come back to, but I was going to ask about um, having not... Um, seen Almayer's Folly and maybe other kinds of literary adaptations that she's drawing on. I was curious about um, grouping the, this letter's home in conversation with that kind of stuff. And I didn't know if you had thoughts about it. Or it was just something that I was thinking about as I was watching the film is that, is there something about, um, on the one hand, there's so much writing in Ackerman's films, including characters who are writing, right? Like, 30 minutes of Jejuelel is like letter writing and the letters all over the uh, floor. And, um, and so in that sense, that kind of madness of, or um, I don't mean madness in a judgmental way. I mean it in the, like, there are normal people and there's two types of normalcy. There's psychosis and neurosis. And so that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone's normal. (laughs) Right. That's just like, um, (laughs) um, need for a kind of or or a constant typing away the like exchanging of letters which comes through even in news from home um that there's it feels like or it sounds like from the stories um from her mother's letters and news from home that Ackerman herself is writing many many letters all the time and so on the one hand there is as we've been saying this kind of like through line of her personal um or her an attachment to characters who write a lot and to almost a certain kind of uh, have a certain kind of attachment to it that seems beyond reason or rationality or something like that. But um, the other the flip side of that is that these are there are some texts that are adaptations of other people's writing, and I was curious if there would be a grouping of those that would be able to speak to each other. Or, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Um, well, I mean, the, stay, the, stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> the, the basic answer is just sort of practical time wise is that we're trying to keep the podcast episodes to about two features an episode, maybe with some shorts, some with too many shorts. But uh, yeah, and so we do have an episode at some point that will deal with these questions of adaptation. Um, and there just wasn't space for this film. But now that you say it, though, that would have been interesting. I mean, and that's a good point that we should maybe kind of think to loop back to this a little bit when we're talking about those questions. Because, yeah, I mean, Ackerman as, as adaptrice, as, adapt, as adapter, it's, it's so important to her work. And it runs throughout, like, particularly these later 
the later decades, I think once you get into the 80s and on, it's like a common theme that she's either adapting things or trying to adapt things that never get actually made. Um, and I think, you know, it, it echoes with what I was saying earlier, which is that I think for Ackerman, she particularly liked what both of us were saying earlier. She particularly liked the idea of adaptation because it specifically rejects any clear line between one subject and another subject in terms of like the trace that's left, the production that's made. It it, it refutes the kind of like interpretation that imputes something to a singular interiority. Um, and I think there's that. I also just think she liked working with people. I mean, I think she liked taking art that existed and then finding a way to kind of transform it, like bring it into line with film, kind of make something new out of it. Um, yeah. I don't, I mean, I have maybe one or two more things to say about this film, but, uh, but nothing too dramatic, but uh, Simon, were you going to say anything there? I can't remember. Uh, no, only that, um, you know, future listeners of the podcast um, around July or August, will be talking about Alamere's Folly and, Ackerman as adaptress, so uh, you'll have to go back and re-listen to this episode to understand everything <laughs> we're saying in that episode. So just keep, uh, keep yes, by then, by then we'll have hundreds of thousands of followers. We will be the most popular podcast, <laughs> yes, absolutely, on the airwaves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just at that point, can I add that I love, and I was saying this to Simon before, I love the like sprawling nature of the podcast that is like we will go wherever these texts take us and not try to like give you the tight summary and why you should care about it mode which is also like Ackerman's own mode of working and and moving images so that's nice yeah thanks Lakshmi <laughs> well get back to us in in 18 months or whatever we'll see yeah. you about it. yeah <laughs> Uh, Kate, what, what, what were your what, what closing remarks did you have in mind about uh, Letters Home? Maybe I'll just say these as um, previews of things we'll talk about more later. Um, you know, I think the idea of because uh, Simon, I think you were saying, yeah, sort of that the film has more kind of like stimulus in it than you expect. You know, like light, color, costume, all of these things. And I think one thing that I, I wanted to just flag here that I think matters, and I think probably would have been another thing that Ackerman would have felt drawn to in relation to the film. And it will become increasingly important starting in uh, films that we will maybe start talking about next month um, is this idea of the kind of like non-representational image in Ackerman's work or the idea of like an image that explicitly <laughs> refuses to present what is being referred to in the dialogue or in the, um, in the descriptions. So here, for example, everything that happens in the play is always being alluded to as happening outside of this space that we're in, that we're in that we're in this kind of space that's like specifically denuded of any markers. It's either just like clouds painted on a wall or faces. I mean, again, this film is is much more populated by close-ups than than Ackerman's films normally are, like predominantly populated. Yeah, I was going to mention that. Um, yeah, which is a bit unusual for her. Although, and one thing we haven't actually said yet too that I did want to add about the film that I do think is interesting in relation to the kind of question of the epistolary mode from the first film is that both the play and the film um, have both actresses reading the letters to us, to the audience, and particularly in the film with the kind of like heavy use of the close-ups as the women both sort of talk at each other technically, but to us, it puts us in this interesting position of like being the letter. Like we are the, we are the thing that is transferred between the women. We kind of occupy this impossible place 
that's wished for to be between both of them on both sides. So I actually think that's a kind of interesting thing that the film does achieve. Um, but then, yeah, just Ackerman's interest in how to kind of use film in such a way to um, both create images that are, that are interesting and engaging and often quite beautiful, but really deny giving you access to the thing that they say you should be seeing in the image. Um, and we'll keep, we'll come back to that and talk about it more later. But yeah, I think that was sort of the last, the last things I wanted to say. I was just going to echo and agree with that because I, and it was really helpful to hear you articulate it in that way, because there's obviously an evolution in her, in her sort of visual language. And, um, but that there is that constant, right. That every time this is just a film where um, you're watching, I don't know how many shots, but not that many of different corners of New York. Um, Then actually it's like about literally everything else. Um, just as this is like a retelling of Sylvia Platt's life, but actually <laughs> it's um, not going to give you any of the things that it says it's going to give you at the same time. So mm-hmm. anyway, just echoing that back to you. <laughs> um, I Simon, before we wrap up too, I just quickly wanted to say that, because I feel like we never remember to say it on this podcast, where always we constantly remember to say it on The Lodgers, is just that I really appreciate how many lovely people we've had reach out to us about the podcast and say that they've been listening and that they've been spreading the word. And so I just wanted to say thank you to everybody for doing that. We really appreciate people kind of finding us and we hope that people keep keep kind of spreading the word because I think every time we put in an episode, we get a few more people finding it. So please do that. And, you know, Simon always asks for reviews, but maybe I'll ask for reviews this time too, because, you know, it helps people find the podcast and that's great. So, yeah. Uh, Yes, it does. Um, Again, we need to stand out from the teeming mass of Ackerman podcasts. (laughs) Um, uh, Lakshmi, can you be found online? Do you want to be found online? Mostly I don't, but you can find, I am, I am on um, social media I'm bad at um, being at it frequently, but I have these frenetic bursts. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at um, L-A-K-S-H underscore M-I, but also my um, website is just my name, LakshmiPadmanabhan.com. So, Excellent. Uh, future guests of this podcast, uh, please note something uh, Lakshmi did earlier when she said nice things about us on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> future guest bar has been rained so, just so you know that's it from us i guess anyone can signal now if there's any no good just wanted to say thank you lakshmi this was such a great conversation oh my god i enjoyed it so much so Likewise. thank you so much for making time in a busy semester to come and talk to us in the middle of covid craziness oh, oh my god thank you for finding this the time such a joy so much fun. excellent okay <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening. We'll be back in roughly a month's time uh, with another few Ackerman films and another special guest. Thank you, Lakshmi. Thank you, Kate. Talk to you all later.